Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. You know success when you see it, or you think you do, the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to Would You Miss This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This is the new podcast that has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co-anchor with Scarlett Fu and Julia Chatterley on Bloomberg Television called Would You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspectives on the week's top stories and, well, those that you may have just missed. We hope the podcast is the perfect way to kick off your weekend. First off, we spoke with David Kirkpatrick, author of The Facebook Effect and founder and CEO of Techonomy, about Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg's two days of congressional testimony. David said Zuckerberg did solve more problems than he created. Take a listen. David, explain to us where our data is going and, and how it's. I wish I could fully explain where all of our data is going. I think actually one of the healthiest things that's come out of these, these hearings is that more average Americans are being forced to realize that this is all about their data, and that's what they should have known all along. Uh, There is a reason why these services are free, and it's not necessarily a horrible thing, but you shouldn't go into it unawares. And I thought it was very interesting also how many of the Congress people were holding up user agreements and asking him (laughs) whether he thought people really read them. And he was acting like people really do kind of read them, which is, of course, totally wrong, as all the senators and congressmen were saying. Well, we learned they're longer than the U.S. Constitution yesterday. Yeah, very long. I think the general view is that he did fine. I mean, I the stock well. is up. He didn't. There were no major gaffes that are going to be replayed and replayed. But in the questioning that you heard, and when you go back, are there going to be areas that you sense, okay, this could down the road start to emerge as the germ of a problem that could still face the company? Well, I think he solved more problems than he created. I mean, I don't think he solved any, but he certainly addressed problems and made progress on problems. I think he did do an excellent job on balance. He certainly showed he had stamina, and he was generally unflappable faced with some extremely hostile questions, yes. especially today. Um, I mean, certainly his willingness to accept regulation, which he repeated over and over again, and even yesterday at one point promised to provide a list of regulations (laughs) that he was willing to have Facebook abide by, that is going to come back, and whether you call it haunting him or simply affecting him, I don't know, but that's going to change the terms under which Facebook operates in American society. 
Well, what he wasn't willing to do was change the business model of the company. For instance, there are a lot of questions about uh, opting in rather than opting out. And, of course, we know for Facebook, the easier Facebook makes it for people to opt out, the less profitable its advertising business is. Walk us through a little bit here about how Facebook really makes its money. Does it make money on users who have the lowest privacy settings, who just have make data available to everyone, or does it just need the most number of users? Is it volume or value here? I would say, on balance, it makes money, the most money off the wealthiest users, because it knows exactly who we all are, where we live, what we have, what we do, and it the ads are more expensive if they go to, you know, affluent women who live in Manhattan who work in television. I mean, oh, they yeah. could target that. <laughs> they could target that, by the way. So, you know, that's going to be an expensive ad. You know, you can actually advertise to one individual if you try hard enough on Facebook. That has been done in the past. I think it's still possible. I mean, so the point is targeting is what it's all about. They, the more data they have on you, the more they can target you. Zuckerberg continually presents that as a virtue, not a, a negative, because he says, that allows the ads to be more relevant, which is a inverse of that they allows the ads to be more profitable for Facebook. When I first got targeted by advertising, I was horrified. And then I was like, actually, it's quite useful to me. I kind of got over my initial that I'd been caught out doing something. I'm just not sure how much users ultimately care. Hashtag delete Facebook really didn't get going. Well, Julia, you're right. It, users really don't care, I'm afraid. We also spoke with George Magnus, China Center Associate at the University of Oxford, about the worry of weaponizing finance between the U.S. and China. Well, I think if you say at this moment, I think the answer is no. In fact, I read the story along with uh, probably hundreds of thousands of other people today on Bloomberg, and um, I wasn't convinced by it, to be honest. Um, and I think at this point, uh, particularly after the lessons which I think the Chinese learned in 2015 and 2016, they would be really anxious about using uh, the messaging of a, a currency depreciation or using the currency as a weapon in this uh, trade spat with the United States, because I think they would worry that it would engender financial instability at home and also encourage the inventiveness of uh, Chinese companies and Chinese households to get their money out of China, uh, despite the fact that, of course, they have capital controls. But uh, that hasn't stopped people in the past. So I, I think uh, I wouldn't discount it completely. I mean, in the event of a complete breakdown of relations, uh, of course, you know, all gloves will be off. But I think at this point, no, I don't, I don't buy that story, to be honest. George, do you feel similarly about uh, the idea that perhaps China at some point would reduce its U.S. Treasury holdings? Is the analysis similar or is that is there, are there moves that it could make there that could have some effect that wouldn't be so self-damaging? Yeah, you know, we've uh, we've been through this quite a few times in the last 10 or 15 years about whether China might, uh, you know, sell treasuries as a kind of to, to weaponize, you know, its armory against the United States. Um, I mean, we have to just think about this, actually, because uh, during 2015-16, when China was going through financial turbulence, um, basically their foreign reserves, most of which are in dollars, you know, declined by about a trillion dollars without really uh, threatening or, or, or moving the treasury market. And Japan has um, basically reduced its holdings of, uh, or diversified its holdings of treasuries, too, without really moving the market. So 
I, I also feel that the, the kind of the, the, the narrative, which is that China can kind of weaponize finance in order to hit back at the United States, is actually both um, counterproductive for China, because obviously if prices in treasury uh, assets fall, then the Chinese themselves will actually suffer losses as well. Um, so I, I think there are other things the Chinese can do because they've used um, kind of pressure on companies and governments before against Norway, the Philippines, Japan, South Korea. Uh, so I, I think there are other things they can do before they even get to this kind of Armageddon type of scenario where they're, you know, as a last resort, they might, they might use finance. All right. So as we watch China and the U.S. trade tit for tat and, and ratchet up these tensions and threats of a trade war, you've laid out three distinct possibilities. What is the most likely outcome? Well, you know, I think uh, we're all guessing here. I mean, I, um, there is still a possibility, I suppose, that um, uh, that there will be a fudge. I mean, I mean, I think everybody knows that within the next uh, year, tomorrow or the day after tomorrow, President Xi Jinping is going to appear at the Bao Forum, which is this big kind of Davos type event they have in in Hainan on the island of Hainan in, in China. Um, and uh, it's widely expected, you know, he's going to make a very important speech. You know, China will not back down in the face of U.S. pressure, and President Trump doesn't seem like, you know, he's going to back down unless he can actually have something to show for it. So this, there's a possibility that in the next 30 to 60 days, maybe, that there could still be a fudge. I don't think there'll be a solution because I think the, the, the underlying conflict between the U.S. and China, you know, ostensibly it's about trade, but fundamentally it's about technology and it's about industrial policy in China. So uh, that's not going to be resolved by, you know, changing a few tariffs or, or opening markets to American financial firms, although these may be part of a fudge that I think, you know, is still possible. But I do think, you know, markets are still a bit complacent. I think we have to be prepared for the possibility that actually things will get um, much trickier, much nastier um, before they might get a little bit kind of stable, let's put it like that. I mean, the, the fudge requires some level of communication and negotiation, surely. I mean, we had the Chinese Commerce Ministry saying that trade talks cannot be held under current conditions. So what's the risk here, George? And it kind of alludes to your point of the perhaps the underappreciated risk here is that the, the Chinese just get pushed to such an extent that they go, you know what, we've battened down the hatches. We're not going to negotiate with you. And President Trump, you've got an election to win in a few months' time, and we don't have to worry about that ever again. Uh, that's, that's quite true. I mean, there, there, there is that political leverage that, that the Chinese certainly have. And, and it's important uh, from a timing point of view, obviously, for, from a political point of view, for the president to you know, do it, basically come up with something uh, during the next few months. But I think, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's a, um, um, uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a very, very kind of risky situation. I, I don't think China wants a trade war. I don't Although they say there aren't any uh, kind of negotiations or trade talks going on, I can't believe that back channels aren't really working. I know that in the, uh, the so-called comprehensive economic dialogue, which, was taking place, which took place last uh, summer, that there was a lot of disappointment about um, the, uh, the state of negotiations and the infrastructure of dialogue between the U.S. and China, and probably things are not working as they used to. Um, but I, I'm not sure that it's true that, you know, that, 
that there's been a complete kind of breakdown of communications, notwithstanding what I think the Commerce Ministry or the Finance Ministry in Beijing said the other day. George, real quickly, uh, there's this emerging narrative out there that, you know, Trump has the next election to worry about and Xi Jinping basically has forever so he can play the long game. Is China really able to be much slower and strategic and deliberative or is that sort of a myth? Uh, I, I think it's a bit of a myth. I mean, we we all think that, uh, you know, that, I mean, it's part of the narrative that, uh, that China itself likes to encourage, which is, you know, they've been around for 5,000 years and they right. take the long view and so on and so forth. But actually, if that was true, then, you know, then China would never have run into any kind of financial or economic kind of turbulence during the last 20 years. And of course, that's been patently untrue. It keeps on running into uh, trouble when it kind of makes errors and it, and it does make errors from time to time. And, uh, so I think that that view that China can sit back and take the long view is, uh, is you know, is, um, it, it's a nice part of a story, but actually I don't think it really holds much water, to be honest. And finally, we spoke to Alberto Ramos, Goldman Sachs head of LATAM Economics. He joined us to talk about what's ahead for Brazil and Mexico. Alberto discussed how the asset gains we've seen so far could be compromised or reversed. This is day and night versus the macroeconomic reality yes. we were facing a couple of years ago. You know, we conquered inflation. We are now living under low inflation, low rates, going through the initial iterations of a cyclical recovery. The current account has adjusted significantly. The external funding needs are rather modest, but there is a missing leg in all of that. We, is, we need to see faster and deeper uh, progress towards fiscal adjustment. That right. is the complex fiscal legacy you're leaving for the next administration. The issue is urgent. It's unavoidable. The next government needs without losing too much time to deal with the fiscal issues that could eventually lead to a reversal of all those macroeconomic gains we have seen so far. Is that understood? Uh, To a certain extent, yes, the current administration did not move that much uh, towards fiscal consolidation, but they tried hard. Uh, But the political equilibrium was such that it was difficult to co-opt large segments of Congress into supporting some of these fiscal adjustment measures, namely uh, critical social security reform that will be part of the pending agenda for the next administration. Uh, At the same time, when you look at at the Brazilian stock market performance, it's been pretty spectacular. It's up about 30 percent, more than 30 percent over the past year, sideways more so this year thus far. Uh, Do you think that those various measures are necessary, that we need to get past this election in order for that a next leg up to happen? They are critically necessary. Certainly the stock market has, uh, you know, recorded significant gains over the last year or so, uh, coming from a very low depressed base. Uh, We see now the initial signs that the business cycle is firming. Rates are low. So when you look at, at, you know, the outlook for equities in general, is still somewhat supportive. The external environment also played a role in supporting local equities. But again, you know, all these asset price gains we have seen so far and macroeconomic rebalance gains we have seen so far can be compromised, eventually even reversed, if we don't advance towards the fiscal consolidation. Uh, on the flip side, we've also seen the real weaken. It's at its weakest since, I think, March of last year. Um, how much just sort of election uncertainty is still residual in the market that if there were a outcome that was sort of benign to most investors would uh, lift assets and bring money back into Brazil? Uh, it's certainly a possibility that we're six months away from a very complex election. You know, the field of candidates is still very undefined. Investors, there are, they have that much visibility into that election. You know, today has been a rather chaotic day and somewhat hectic. So political noise, political uncertainty, policy uncertainty is still quite high. You know, when you're getting closer and closer to that election, the field of candidates 
period. It's, it's very fragmented, so we don't really know uh, well what would be you know, the policy mix that will come with the next administration. I have to point out as well, coming to the end of an easing cycle as well for the, uh, the central bank here too, probably quite critical. And speaking of political uncertainty, we've got some here in the United States as well. And as a, sort of an effect of that, we perhaps have handed Brazil a gift in the form of a bigger market for its soybeans. If there's going to potentially, <laughs> if there's going to be a smaller one from the United States, um, of course, it's still an if. Right. Yeah. How how big of an, a help for Brazil will that be if indeed we see that play yeah, out? Yeah. Uh Somewhat limited, I would say. Okay. Uh, first, because you're talking about a commodity. A commodity means it's an homogeneous good. You can actually sell everything you produce at the international market clearing price. If uh, the destination of U.S. soybeans were to change and that would drive, you know, that demand towards uh, Brazilian soybeans, you know, the destination of the current destination for Brazilian soybeans, they will probably buy from some other source. So in India, these markets are interconnected. There's a global clearing price. That being said, Brazil is an extraordinarily closed economy to trade. Soybeans and total exports are less than 10 percent of GDP. That's not going to necessarily move the needle that much in terms of the macroeconomic outlook for Brazil. Everything that you said about Brazil is kind of the equal and opposite of what's going on in Mexico right now and obviously we've got in terms of the the macro environment but we've also got the the added kicker of the NAFTA negotiations the upcoming election uncertainty there too what are you thinking as far as Mexico is concerned and how optimistic are you even relative to a month ago on on a successful preliminary deal let's call it Cautiously optimistic. Right. You know, certainly, you know the the macro reality is not very inspiring. You know, modest growth, high inflation, high rates, high carry, but poorly anchored currency, mm-hmm. a friction with the, the dominant trading partner, the U.S., and the ongoing negotiation uh, of NAFTA, and a very complicated election on July 1st, where the leading candidate seems to espouse a more interventionist, somewhat heterodox, and populist policy approach. How does the uh, election interplay with Trump's? Uh, reported desire to get a deal very soon. And is there anything that the current government can really agree to uh, that would be palatably, palatable domestically? Uh, it's certainly an issue. Uh, it seems that the three parties involved are keen on accelerating the process and reaching a preliminary agreement within the next few weeks uh, because of the political calendar. You're going to have a presidential election July 1st in Mexico. You have the expiration of the fast-track authority in the U.S. on July the 8th, and then you have the midterm congressional elections in the U.S. in November. Uh, so they you know, want to accelerate a little bit the process, get an agreement to see if there is any chance that the current legislature in Mexico approves the, you know, whatever deal uh, they agreed to, because the political balance of power may change with the election coming July 1st. Uh, NAFTA aside, you talked about how there's all kinds of things to not like about the Mexican economy. You mentioned what Brazil needs to do structurally. What does Mexico need to do structurally? Uh, a lot. Uh, they need to find a way to elevate you know, the domestic savings and domestic investment, increasing productivity growth, opening sectors that have been traditionally highly concentrated and oligopolized. Basically, it's market-friendly policies that are capable of marshalling both domestic and external investment. What happens very quickly to NAFTA, a preliminary deal to NAFTA, if the risk candidate here, Obrador, actually wins the election? Very quickly. Uh, it's a big question mark. Nobody knows. You have to ask him. You know, he may not necessarily <laughs> own. You may, he may not necessarily own. You know, whatever agreement is signed by the current administration. We shall see. And that's it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. You can subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. And, of course, we always love positive reviews. And don't forget to tune in to What You Missed from 3.30 to 5 p.m. Eastern Time, Monday through Friday on Bloomberg TV. Thanks for listening. 
Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.